feel like we just need to like go around recording random conversations that we have instead of waiting to be in the studio and recording. I don't know if that would get us more or fewer followers. <laughs> probably, probably fewer. We'd probably scare some people <laughs> away. Uh, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I got a six pack of Oreos in front of me, so really. I, I was can't hoping complain. those were the ones you're going to open. There's a whole bag of <laughs> snacks, and I'm like, my, God, I, yeah. I hope she goes for the Oreos. Got my emergency snack bag. <laughs> <at all times. laughs> Half of it's from me. <laughs> we got some. Uh, what do we got in here? Now we got. Some chocolate glazed donut sticks. Donut uh, sticks. S'mores pop tarts. Uh, trail mix. Some kind of cereal bar. That one's definitely for me. Uh, there's, I think there's a caffeinated chocolate bar in there. Oh, dibs. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Well. Riley does not do well hangry. No, I don't. No, it's a. Uh, we, we cross a red line at that point. Yeah, I've learned how to live with it, you know. <laughs> Same. <laughs> oh, Lottie. So last time you started talking about a ship. Was it a cruise liner? Uh, I don't remember, but it was a ship that went missing. Yeah, so I, I looked it up, and in the last episode, I said that it was, I was, I was certain it was after World War II. It was not. I, I spoke with too much confidence. So... The ship that I was referring to was the Mary Celeste, and this is straight from Wikipedia. A Canadian-built, American-registered merchant brigantine? Brigantine. Brigantine. (laughs) Super close. (laughs) That was... (laughs) Brigantine. That was discovered adrift and deserted in the Atlantic Ocean off the Azores Island on December 4th, 1872. That was was close to World War, whichever one you said. (laughs) Sure. I truly love this description. I really resonate with it. She was found in a disheveled but seaworthy condition <laughs> um, under partial sail and with her lifeboat missing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, I think that's the, the caption on your LinkedIn profile. Disheveled and seaworthy, mm-hmm. yeah. The captain's and crew's personal belongings were undisturbed. None of those who had been on board were ever seen or heard from again. Does it say what kind? Like, was it a shipping vessel or was it like a... It was a merchant brigantine. I kind of just wanted to hear you say brigantine again. Brigantine. <laughs> there is... That, that is the quick and dirty explanation. There are movies and podcasts about this ship. There are tons of conspiracy theories. Because truly, like, it looked as if the people on board just, like, poofed. Mm. Poofed away. There was no evidence that, like they were under duress or anything like that. Like all of this stuff was still there. All of the alcohol was still on board. That's like the first thing you pack. Right. So, um, yeah, really interesting. Um, a lot of podcasts and stuff. So if you're interested, um, but then I, I said something later in the podcast about the movie ghost ship, which I just remember you saying it was bad. It was, Oh, it's, well, it's horrible. I think I watched it when it came out in 2002, but I erroneously thought they were like, the same. Oh. I thought Ghost Ship was based on the Mary Celeste. Okay. It is not. The Ghost Ship is about a marine salvage crew that comes upon an abandoned ship in the ocean that turns out to be haunted. Mm-hmm. So, spoiler, there's a ship that has ghosts on it? Yeah. Not much of a spoiler. The movie is called Ghost Ship. <laughs> so, um, that is the update I'm sure everyone was waiting for. Well, it, now that you actually, like, bring out the story, it reminds me of people are going to start to think that we're ship people. But uh, on my first deployment, COVID started while I was gone. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, while we were out of communication, um, the first indication that we had is they wouldn't let us pull into Singapore. But at the time, it was only isolated to Asia. And then by the time we like started coming home and it, it had reached the US, like all of the West Coast was shut down. So we were gonna come home to San Diego, everything was closed and shut down and we had to come home to like an extremely different home. I remember there being like stories and news articles and I think it was like on the headline news at one point, but they did a story on the last cruise ship, like cruise liner that left before everything shut down so people go on, you know, whatever, a month-long cruise, mm-hmm. and then everything shuts down while they're gone. 
So they did a story on like what it was like for these people to come home and they just totally dramatized everything. <laughs> you know, they, they come home and all their grocery stores are closed. They can't go out to restaurants. So it's, you know, coming home to a different world. But I just remember thinking like, oh, these, these people get to come home from a cruise and it was just so similar to how I came home from, from the first deployment. Was, everything was just so different. I was like, what kind of crap is this? I feel like I'd get off the boat and then be like, hold on, can I, can I get back on the boat? No, no, it was not all that different than being on board. Wow. Uh, thank you for the update on the ghost ship. Of course. Um, I'm probably not going to watch the movie. I am disappointed in you, but I accept it. Uh, I do have a question to start us off, though. Okay. I was thoroughly unprepared for the last question, so hopefully I can get my things together for this one. Okay, so my first question is for both of us, and I'll start so you have time to think. Okay. My question is, what is, like, something funny about you or, like, a quirk that you would need, in order to be friends with somebody, they would just need to accept this about you? Um, not necessarily something that they have to tolerate, but it's just something that hmm. they'll probably make fun of you for or something, but they will just accept to be friends with you. I will think about this, but... I am a quirk. It is my personality, yep. but I will think of something. That's why I did not think you would have an issue thinking of something to go mm -hmm. with. You could pick any bit of your personality yeah, pick traits. Pick from any list. Mm -hmm. um, the one that I thought of was, I'm very particular, and you give me shit about this all the time, I'm very particular about where I park and how I park the car. <laughs> You also have a fucking tank for a car. <laughs> okay. But I've done this with other cars, too. I have to, like, park in very specific spots in the parking lot. I typically will back in. If I if I park forward, it's just going to be an absolute shit show. <laughs> <laughs> we will get out of the car, and you, and you parked like an ass. Well, <laughs> and you have no reason to park like an ass. I've been in your car. When you put it in, like, reverse or whatever... You're like the screen in your car. It's as if there's a drone. It's got hovering. the drone, the drone it's camera. Got everything. <laughs> like you can see every angle around your car. It does not make sense. Well, you to can me. see up the tailpipe. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> no, that is the quirk about me, though. Is like I will pass, you know, twelve open parking spots because I'm looking for the one that I want. I think okay. I have a couple, and I. I I would probably some of them are deal breakers for people just because like personality <laughs> differences. Yeah. These ones are kind of strong. Um, <laughs> okay. A couple things. Um, I, I have a lot of energy and it, wait, you <laughs> think about a dog that like hasn't been exercised and you can just feel them vibrating like energy. That's how I feel like most of the time. And so I have just weird quirky things I'm walking I'll often just like put a little dance in my walk or like something just to get a little bit extra energy out I don't know what my metabolic rate is but it is got to be ridiculous because I just I, I like I haven't run today and I can feel it so that's just something you just need to know like there's an underlying level of like energy in my body and I think that's part of the reason that I run so much and it's not it's never been like a problem <laughs> I would say the other thing, and this is just like a weird quirk, I think my favorite sense is touch. Oh. I am very tactile, and it drives people crazy if you're shopping with me, especially if <laughs> That I'm, was the first example I was thinking of, is yeah. you touch everything in the store. Yeah, if I'm clothes shopping, I just, it, it's, it's not a conscious thing, I just touch every piece of clothing, and like the vast majority of things that I wear are <laughs> sounds so weird, but like pleasing to the touch. Mm -hmm. A lot of my shirts, any sweater that I have is going to be like ultra soft and cozy. It's just who I am. I don't uh, know. Okay, well, I think the first thing you say when you show me something new is <laughs> feel how soft this is. <laughs> it's true. But it's also like so ironic because I do not like physical touch from other people. Like, in terms of a love language, I don't want people touching me. Like, if I'm in a 
culture where like touching it like you know just person to person touching is very common like I am deeply uncomfortable but like with objects I cannot stop myself I'm like you know whether it's you know a piece of clothing or something that just looks like wonderfully smooth and like silky I just I don't know man I think you just need to pick the right shopping partner then (laughs) yep so Riley has been talking all week about this story that she found The suspense has been killing me, but apparently this is a doozy of a story. Okay. This is one of my favorite... I don't even want to call it a story. There's really not much of a conclusion to it at this point. It's... um, I'm going to say solved in in finger bunnies, whatever you call them. Finger bunnies? (laughs) Quotations? Quotations. (laughs) <laughs> I'm doing the open finger, finger bunny, bunny closed finger bunny <laughs> it is solved I don't believe that it's solved once we get to the end of the story we can make that judgment I think let's just get into it I will preface this with a couple things um, it happens in uh, modern day Russia at the time of the Soviet Union any of the names I am going to butcher I'm just going to apologize to all of our Russian listeners we're just going to go with a lot of Ivan, <laughs> Igor. Um, yes. I will also, I'll say this again once we get to a little bit more of a graphic part, but there are parts of this story that if you don't like bodily harm, <laughs> maybe isn't for you. But you can listen to the first part. This is the Diet Love Pass Incident. And I'm probably going to say that like five different ways. Diet love. Diet love. Diet love. Diet love. Okay. That sounds Russian. Diet love. Yeah. You want to go with that? That sounds very Russian. Diet love. Okay. In January 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Sveterlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. This is essentially, if you're looking at a map of modern-day Russia, it's kind of the middle of the country, the, the, how do I want to say? <laughs> the center of the country, northern. Northern central mm. Russia. So it's um, the upper Midwest of, of, it, <laughs> of Honestly, Russia. the upper Midwest of Russia, exactly. Okay, the go. Minnesota of Russia, if you will. The leader of the group was Igor Dyatlov. I knew there was going to be an Igor a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute. Igor assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. The majority of the hikers, I'm going to interchangeably refer to them as skiers and hikers. Okay. So this trip, I'll get into it a little bit more. It's kind of a combo of skiing and hiking. The majority of the hikers slash skiers were in their early 20s, with the exception of one 38-year-old. Each member of the group was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, grade three was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. I was going to ask about the grades because like, I feel like I could hike at a, at a third grade level pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I did a little bit of research because I wasn't, I know climbing grades in terms of like rock climbing and bouldering. In terms of Hiking grades is kind of, it's essentially like a a rating of the risk or difficulty. And it varies a little bit where you are, but just as a reference point at this time in the Soviet Union, grade three was kind of the highest you could achieve. So they were like very experienced, which I think is pretty impressive considering they ranged from like 20 to 25 years old. Semi-professional hikers. Semi-professional hikers. So just so we're like understanding the hiking skiing thing, they start the trip on skis. It's essentially cross-country skiing. It's not up or down, really. A certain part of it, they take the skis off, put them on their back, and then they're hiking. What? It's Why not up or down. <laughs> up or down <laughs> skiing. Can you please explain the difference between cross-country skiing and downhill skiing? <laughs> it's not up or down skiing. 
I was gonna let I you keep. Ski. I was gonna let you keep going, and I couldn't <laughs> hold it in. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so we're gonna start January twenty third. So again, this is nineteen fifty nine. They have assembled this group. Um, they're gonna go out and do this multi day ski and hiking trip. Skiking. Skiking. Yep. So January twenty third, the group left Sverdlovsk city, um, which is today. Yekaterinburg on January 23rd. Uh, now I know what you're talking about. The same day that they received the root book, which essentially was telling them their day-to-day plan. So rather than staying and studying it all, they just were like, cool, let's go. The root estimated as category three, so again, that sort of grade three classification, was undertaken in February, the most difficult time of the year to traverse. So keep in mind, like this is Northern Russia, this is not the ideal time to yeah, do it. This is like where they send people to go just suffer. Yes. Um, okay. So they leave their sort of home base the 23rd. They arrived at their departure village on January 26th. So they traveled for a few days. They were traveling by train and car to get to where they need to go. So January 27th, the group began their trek from Vizai, the last inhabited village to the north. They began their trek on skis and traveled about nine miles to their first campsite. So not not too bad on skis. Uh, Next day, January 28th, just one day into the trip, one of the members who had severe health ailments, including rheumatism and congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue. I'm just going to put it out there. This doesn't sound like a trek for somebody with a congenital heart defect. No, I'm, uh, I was a little confused why he would even start. Yeah. So he very wisely made the decision to turn back and not to give anything away. But from this point onward, everything that we know about what happened to them came from primarily the diaries that were recovered. Oh. So they are all keeping a diary, or one or two of them kept a diary? There was a collective diary for the entire group, and several members of the group had their own personal diaries. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And I got really into this, so sort of at the end we'll talk about it, but there's extensive research and information available about this journey that they went on. All of the diaries are in the public domain now, so you can actually read all of them. So I've included a few snippets because I think it's important to sort of humanize these people. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to talk about this, but their diaries are sometimes just very funny. I will also say of the nine people remaining on this trip, two of them were females, so it wasn't just dudes out hiking. Do any of them refer to it as going up or down skiing? I haven't read them in their entirety yet, so I'm not going to say no. <laughs> So a day after this, this dude bails, January 29th, a note from Zena's diary. Zena was one of the women. Yurka and I were discussing the past while sawing the firewood. He's such a playboy. That's the rough translation from Russian, huh? <laughs> it's a rough translation. <laughs> so they're just, you know, sawing firewood, talking about... Uh, I'm sure he made no wood jokes. <laughs> okay. So a couple days pass. They're still basically just skiing most of their journey and then camping out at night. Saw and firewood. Saw and firewood, you know, gossiping. Uh, to be fair, they're like early 20s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this maybe is like their post-college trip or exactly. something. So January 31st, so we're, you know, let's say five days into the trip. The group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. So essentially they're taking their skis off, they're moving into more of the hiking portion of this trip. In a wooded valley, they basically stored surplus food and equipment that they would use on the trip back. Makes sense. Um, So essentially, you know, there's a map of this online, but it's sort of a lollipop-shaped loop. Okay. So they're essentially at the part where they, you know, start the loop. So the idea is they don't want to carry all their stuff the rest of the way. So they essentially bury it in snow because what's going to happen to it when it's buried in snow so that when they come back, they can have that. Famous last words. Yeah. I thought this was a little bit um, spooky in retrospect, but this is another note from one of the diaries 
Um, this is the leader, Dyatlov. It says, we made a fire on logs. No one wanted to dig a special hole for it. We had dinner right in the tent. It's warm in here. It's difficult to imagine such comfort somewhere on a mountain range with the severe howl of the wind hundreds of kilometers from any inhabited places. That is some foreshadowing. Yeah. So, like, they were just so happy. They were in their element just... And, like, if you can imagine, like, yes, it's winter and it's kind of brutal, but if you're just pitching a tent and having a fire in the middle of absolutely nowhere, it's beautiful. They also have that sense of self-accomplishment for having their own tent. They made their own food. Yeah. They have all their own supplies, and they're Mm -hmm. with, like, people that they want to spend time with. Yep. Yep. So that was January 31st. So the next day, February 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass It seemed they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west toward the top of Kolat Siakl. Sorry. Nailed it. Um, A mountain which in the native language in the area translates to dead mountain. Good. Yep. So when they realized their mistake, basically going off course, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain rather than move one mile downhill to a more forested area that would have offered some shelter from the wind. The, so, so remember the guy that sort of left the crew mm-hmm. in the first couple of days? Um, so he was pretty close with the leader, Igor, and this actually surprised him. So after the fact, he said this was very uncharacteristic. Igor was a very experienced hiker, and so the fact that he didn't move the campsite down into a sheltered area was extremely unlike him. What about the fact that he got lost at all? Yeah, getting lost was was outrageous, yeah. but yeah, it, it was a it was a head scratcher. So essentially, if you're thinking that they're on basically the side of a mountain, they've decided they're not going to go over the mountain tonight because the weather is horrible, but they're also not going to go down a mile to set up in the woods. It seems as if they're just kind of exhausted. Maybe just stop, try again tomorrow. Don't make the problem worse. Exactly. Wait for the weather to pass. So we're going to transition. We're going to fast forward about a week and a half. Before leaving for this trip, Igor had agreed that he would send a telegram to their sports club at the university as soon as the group returned to sort of their, their home base location. He said that he would send that on the 12th of February or that it should arrive by the 12th of February. That was kind of like their anticipated return date. Well, the 12th came and passed, but people weren't super worried because, like, it's kind of a big expedition. They got some bad weather. Yeah, they got some bad weather. Like, things might go wrong. So nobody was really concerned when sort of the day came and went. Igor's experienced. They have confidence in him. Exactly. Honestly, the whole crew is super experienced. They're like, well, they probably ran into bad weather. Maybe they wanted to extend it a little bit. Nobody was concerned. But by the time February 20th came around... Oh, that's a little bit. That's a little bit more. nobody had heard from them. The traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation. And the head of the institute that they were at school sent the first rescue groups which consisted of volunteer students and teachers they very quickly realized that they were in over their head because keep in mind this is february in northern russia so later the army and police forces became involved with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation six days later yikes february 26th searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kolat Seaka. Do you know what February 26th is? Your birthday? It's very exciting. We should celebrate the discovery of their tent. So keep in mind, they set up camp on this mountain February 1st. It is now February 26th when their tent has been discovered. Investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed, leading down to the edge of the nearby woods about a mile away. So a quick getaway? Perhaps. Question mark? At the edge of the woods, so again, these are the woods that they should have camped out at, but chose the mountain. 
At the edge of the woods, investigators found the remains of a small fire, and they found the remains of the first two hikers. The two men were shoeless and were dressed only in their underwear. As investigators continued searching the area, they found three more bodies between the forest edge and the camp, including the leader of the voyage, Igor. Okay, not what I was predicting. No. The positioning of their corpses indicate the three were headed back toward their camp. So, just so we have sort of an image in our head, we have tent, which is set up on the edge of the mountain, forest a mile south. With two bodies. Two bodies are down in the forest by a campsite. Three are sort of in between on the mountain, seemingly headed back toward the camp. Did it say how close they were? We will get there. Oh. An investigation into the incident began immediately. The medical examiner found no injuries that might have led to the five hikers' deaths and thus concluded that they all died of hypothermia. Okay. Keep in mind, this incident happened in northern Russia in February. Temperatures reported during this incident range from negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. So those are our five out of nine hikers. It took more than two months to find the remaining four hikers. Investigators finally found the hikers further into the woods in a ravine under 13 feet of snow. Three of the four were clothed, but suspiciously, they were wearing clothes that belonged to the other hikers. Was it specific that they were snowed on 13 feet, or were they buried in snow? Don't know. Doesn't say. Dubanina, who is one of the two women, was wearing one of the man's burned, torn trousers and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Now, following the discovery of these other four hikers, the investigation took a drastic shift. But we have all nine, right? We have all nine now. We have nine bodies. We have nine bodies. All right, got it. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. One had major skull damage, and two others had major chest fractures. Mm. The amount of force required to cause this level of injury would be equivalent to a car crash. Curiously, their bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures. So wait, no like bruising or anything on the outside, Mm. just internal? Just internal but they were essentially hit by a truck from the inside. Yep. Okay, keep going. So this is only the four that were found in the woods. The other ones had no external damage that could be seen. Remember, they were all declared to have died of hypothermia. Okay. Um, Four were hit by internal trucks, five hypothermia. um, Three of the four in the woods had fatal injuries. Um, Another content warning, it's about to get gnarly. So of the four that were found in the woods, so the, the four that were found later, all four had soft tissue damage to their head and face area. The woman, the one who is wearing the man's pants, was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of her skull bone. One of the men had his eyeballs missing, and another man, his eyebrows were missing. Not his eyes, his eyebrows. His eyebrows. Were they, like, really good eyebrows? What the heck? (laughs) You got to pay for that. (laughs) Must have just gotten them done. Most of the injuries to the soft tissue were judged to have happened post-mortem, so very likely animals. Okay. You know, it took two months for them to find them, so it kind of makes sense that mm. something came around and ate them. Some scavengers. But some of it remained unclear. It was determined that the woman's tongue had been removed while she was still alive. 
So you have a mix of post-mortem injuries, but that one's not? Correct. Is that the only one? Yep. Ooh. Just her tongue. Yep. This is the group of four yep. that was under the snow. Yep. She is buried under 13 feet of snow in a ravine in the woods, and they determined that her tongue was removed while she was alive. What were they afraid she was going to say? When I think of, like, removing someone's tongue is, like, to keep them from talking. So in May 1959, the same month that the final four hikers were discovered, the Soviet Union closed the case and determined the deaths were caused by a compelling natural force. You mean the KGB decided that they were... I'm not saying anything. (laughs) All records from this incident were then classified. Of course they were. And that's essentially where it left, where it remained, for decades. That's like the official record That is the official. They found the rest of the bodies and they said, compelling natural force. Shouldn't have gone on such a dangerous hike. Mm Mm-hmm. So the case was classified in 1959. In 2009, all of the diaries entered into public domain. And so people started being able to kind of look through some of this material. Um, Russia, sometime in the early 2010s, actually reopened this case. And a lot of the materials were made public. That is unlike them. It is unlike them. It perhaps wasn't entirely their choice. It turns out one of the investigators from the 50s actually held on to a lot of the original material. Igor, the leader of the trip, had a camera, and he documented the entire trip. And so all of the photos were also released. So we have the photos, we have the diaries, um, and then a lot of the investigative reports were either made public or given to investigators who wanted to take on this case. So just a couple of notes from inquest files. So as I said, six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby on the mountain aside from the travelers. So they kind of benefit when they found the first five. They could still see all of the footprints Mm -hmm. and they could match them exactly to each person. So there were no footprints from other people or from animals. Leading to the hypothermia. Correct. Okay. Of note, the tent had been ripped open from within. That's what I'm wondering. How do you tell that? I don't know. I guess guess they were sure enough to say it was from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord, on foot, at a slow pace. And no other footprints, so they weren't, like, chased out of the tent. They were not running. Mm. They appeared to be going at a very normal, like, walking pace. Um, Perhaps the most interesting note that came out of some testing, levels of radiation were found on all of the clothing of the hikers. And the hiker's skin was described as a deep brown tan. Did they have some type of like acute radiation poisoning? Don't know. Oh. Radiation was not found on anything other than their clothing. Other than their clothing. This is a good one. Mm-hmm. I want to get into some of the theories surrounding this case. Okay. And I should also say, I am barely scratching the surface. How many theories are there? There are so many theories. At the... So each of the hikers had an official funeral in the Soviet Union after they were discovered. A 12-year-old boy in the Soviet Union attended all of the funerals, and they were open casket. He is the one that reported the skin color of being like a very like deep brown. Tan. And that was common to all of the bodies. Common to all of the bodies. Okay, okay. That same boy became obsessed with this case and he started the Dyatlov Foundation, which is now like a treasure trove of all information about this case. If you 
just go on the internet and search this case. There's a website that I got a ton of this information from. Um, we can put it in the description. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. It is so cool because there's also maps showing like where they went and at each point like their campsite and photos that they took of those areas so it's super super cool um anyway so he's been a huge sort of proponent of you know figuring out what happened in this case so the top theory throughout time has been an avalanche okay that would explain the 13 feet of snow on top of those Mm -hmm. that one group In 2020, I told you Russia reopened this case. In 2020, a Russian official working the case announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death for the group in 1959. I think it intuitively makes a lot of sense. They were camping on the edge of the mountain. Their tent was in a pretty vulnerable place. Pretty easy way to... And I, and I wonder if, like, the the blunt force injuries or the internal injuries that that one group had could just be, like, very, very heavy pressure or the heavy weight of the snow on top of them that wouldn't really bruise, but it would, like, crush your bones. Very possible. And then scavengers come along. Hmm. So there is some contradictory evidence. Oh. The location of the incident didn't have any signs of an avalanche having taken place. Okay. Um, so keep in mind, the investigators found them two and a half weeks after their last known night on the mountain. An analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area, its path would have gone past the tent. There are academic papers that have been written talking about the geology, the physics, Everything trying to explain this. Specifically the avalanche part? Yes. Wow. So I'm not going to get into the details because I don't physics, but I'm going to trust the people that do. Do they all come to the consensus it was not an avalanche? No. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Okay. What's the next theory? Okay. Um, This is... This, I believe, it is sort of part of the hypothermia um, conclusion. Have you heard of paradoxical undressing? Enlighten me. So paradoxical undressing is a phenomenon by which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. One explanation is a cold-induced malfunction of the hypothalamus, which is the part of the brain that regulates body temperature, and it sounds a little bit you know, crazy or whatever, it actually happens in 20 to 50% of hypothermic deaths. So you're saying that they would get so cold, the brain would malfunction and, yep. and think that they're actually overheating. Yes. From what I've read in the research, your hypothalamus essentially like malfunctions, and you feel like your skin is about to burn off your body. And so you very quickly shed anything that you're wearing. Interesting. So, you know, the theory would hold true for six of the nine hikers whose bodies were found nearly naked. Mm -hmm. And kind of an interesting side note, people who die from hypothermia in urban environments, so think sort of unhomed people, who, who are found in an undressed state are sometimes incorrectly assumed to have been subjected to sexual assault before their death. Oh. But it's very commonly this paradoxical undressing where, especially if you think about, you know, a place like Minnesota where we are in the winter, it's freezing overnight. So just kind of an interesting note. I would, ne- I would never have thought of that. No, and, and I mean, I think, you know, tragically, if I were to come across somebody... Um, you would think someone else undressed them. You would think somebody undressed them yeah. and something, you know, really tragic in that way happened. So that's, you know, I think if those people did die of hypothermia, that's, that makes sense to me. So another theory, the indigenous people to the area are called the, the Mansi, I believe, or Mansi. So there's a theory that the Mansi 
may have attacked the hikers for passing on their land. This is particularly popular in Russia. However, the Monsi people were known to be peaceful, and there isn't any evidence that supports this theory. As I said before, there were only nine sets of footprints found by the incident site, and the hikers didn't have any injuries that would have been caused by a human attack. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. I don't think there's any, yeah, don't like that one. any backing to that theory. Next, we move on to animals. Plenty of people believe they may have just been attacked by some kind of wild animal, even the Yeti. Ooh. I mean, it is known to be in Russia. <laughs> That's what I've heard. But again, the lack of additional footprints, the fact that the tent was cut from the inside disputes these facts. I mean, why would you, why would you cut yourself out of the tent to be hunted by an animal? And then walk away slowly. <laughs> and then walk tent. slowly and deliberately away. Yeah, no, I, I don't think the animal theory holds up. I think the scavengers holds up. For sure, the postmortem, absolutely. Yeah. So going into the next two theories, these are a little controversial, but I think there's some possibility. But they go together? N not, n they, they could, Okay. but not necessarily. The first one is military tests. Oh, this is Russia. This is the Soviet Union in 1959. There are a lot of theories around various Soviet military tests occurring in this area at the time of the hike. There's, I would say, like a lot of different variations, different, different options for this theory, really. I don't know a ton about military tests or the types of things they were doing in the Soviet Union. I'm um, now leaning back towards the radiation bit. Yep. Oh. Yep. Yep. Keep um, going. There's another point that I, I didn't put in my notes. So there was another group of hikers about 30 miles south of this group. At the same time, they all survived. But they reported during several nights of their hike glowing orbs in the sky and these orbs were reported around the same time by many 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 people yikes yep which leads us into the next theory which is my particular favorite right. <laughs> i'll give you one yes definitely aliens <laughs> how did you know <laughs> um the final one that i'll talk about is UFOs. The UFOs? The UFOs. My personal favorite. There are, again, a ton of theories about aliens, about, you know, generic UFOs. I think this is also very common in Soviet Union era conspiracy theories in general. Um, again, this gets back to the orbs that were seen. Yep. I see now what you mean. They could go together. Yep. People also look to the fact that the Soviet Union very quickly closed this case and then classified the documents. Mm -hmm. And then upon, you know, reopening it in recent years, again, very quickly closed it and said, mm, it was an avalanche. Convenient. Very convenient. I, again, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to rule out an avalanche. I'm not going to rule out hypothermia but I also don't quite understand how they work together. If it looked as if they ran from the tent, I could see they wake up in the middle of the night, they hear whatever sounds like an avalanche. I don't frankly understand why they would sleep nearly naked in their tent, but let's say they're sleeping nearly naked in their tent. They wake up. Some of them only had like one sock on? Yes. I don't... Okay, okay. Devil's advocate. They wake up, they hear these noises, and they say, we have to run for the woods to avoid the avalanche. Okay, I don't you. really know if that's how avalanches work. Like, do they avoid trees? I don't know. How much sound does an avalanche make? I have... I, would it wake you up? I'm not an avalancheologist. <laughs> I don't know. Guys, there's an avalanche outside. <laughs> so let's say that they leave the tent. They cut themselves out because they're in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Why would it look like their footprints, they're just walking? You better believe me, if I hear an avalanche coming, I'm moving my ass to that woods. Maybe they only got one sock on when they were when they were hustling out. Or, hear me out, y'all got skis. <laughs> 
What are we doing? Do the do the downhill portion of skiing. Do the do the downs. Do the down the skiing. Ski downs. Um. So that's the story. Well, I have a question about one of the theories. Okay. Tell me again about the radiation. Did they have like radiation levels on them, or they were they just all just their clothes had radiation their levels? Their clothes had radiation. And it was all of them. All of them. Okay, maybe but none it could of be, their gear. Okay, maybe it could be like where they work had high levels of radiation or something. But that's so weird that it's just their clothing. Yep. And then you said their skin was all kind of like reddish brown. Yep. Like that is definitely a radiation poisoning yep. uh, symptom. So weird though that just like they got levels on all other clothes. Yep. So if you go to dietlovepass.com, you can find just so, 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 so much information. You can, there's a page for each of the hikers, so you can learn about them. You can see photos about them. You can see all the photos that were taken during the investigation and from the cameras that they had. You can read about sort of the deaths and causes of deaths, you know, quote unquote causes of deaths for each of the people. There is a theories tab that has all of the sort of known theories about this. Um, and I will show you our devoted listeners can't see. Oh, that's a, that's a list. There's probably 20 to 30, and it's categorized. There's weather, anomalies, animals, self-inflicted So these are subcategories of all the theories that could have happened. Yeah. Paranormal. There's, there's one, um, uh, quote unquote, um, sorry, finger bunny, something else. How much time did you spend on the paranormal tab? Not that long. Hmm. <laughs> that, you hesitated. <laughs> I do love the, the two theories under quote unquote, something else, Arctic hysteria and teleportation experiment. One of them is mistaken for gulag fugitives. Actually, there's probably something to that one. Yep. Um, There is a KGB theory, but... There has to be. I don't want to get kidnapped, so I'm not going to talk about it. This is being recorded. So there's there's tons. It's super interesting, and they, they describe each of these theories and kind of talk about, you know, the details of each. So super interesting. We'll put the link in the show notes. So you said it's closed because there's an official end to the record mm-hmm. but it is unsolved because there's actually so many theories of what I mean actually it happened. is according to Russia it is solved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I dispute that conclusion but that is the story of the diet love pass incident that was a good one I should also note there are a couple other very similar incidents that are unsolved. Also Russian? If you in Russia. Read into that however you want. <laughs> Color me shocked. <laughs> oh. For a second I thought you were gonna do Chernobyl and I was gonna lose it. No, I'll that let you do that so one. So good. Well, I did try and find like some haunting stories, but really it was just like in Pripyat, in general, people see spirits. Yeah. Like, that's kind of a given. A lot of people died there. I mean, if it is not haunted, then there's no oh, such thing as ghosts. 100%. That has got to be one of the most haunted cities ever. But there's no, like, juicy, long story like this of one soul yeah. that lingered. It's it's just people go there. There's lots of things left behind that have just got, you know, paranormal attached to them there's paranormal yeah. everywhere there i think it's so interesting and maybe i'll do an episode one day i think when people think about like paranormal activity i think people just think of ghosts in the very like stereotypical fashion there are so many different types of hauntings you can have an object that is haunted so it doesn't matter where you are it, it carries some some essence in it and I'm not saying whether I believe in this or not. I frankly don't even know. But the amount of different types of, you know, quote unquote hauntings that there are, I think is fascinating. I have heard of that it's not on your own 
uh, fruition to like remember things all of a sudden or like come up with an idea that like something has affected you from outside yeah. of your thought and conscience. I have heard of things like that where there's like an energy in a room yeah. or something like, or an energy around something that causes you to think something or remember something. Yeah. I've definitely heard of that. That was a good one. You keep making it difficult to top your stories. I think it's fascinating. And like, as I said, there, I first heard this on Morbid, the podcast, and I looked back and it's from 2018. And I was like, okay, I've been a little obsessed with this story for like five years now. And I've listened to a couple different podcasts and I think there's, you know, at least a couple documentaries on it. So I find it very interesting. I like it. Now it's on your podcast. Now it's on my podcast. Do we have time for another question? I think we do. Before class? Okay. It can be rather quick. Um, What was your favorite class, either in high school or in college, and why? This one is so easy for me to answer. I knew it would be. I took, when I was a senior, economic botany. It was incredible. So I went to Smith College, which is a very small women's college out in Western Mass, liberal arts, in like the truest form. So I was a biology major, but at Smith, half of the credits that you take have to be outside of your major. And it's, you know, sort of easy for science majors. I could have done a lot of chemistry and physics and math sort of complementary things, but I really wanted sort of that well-rounded education. So I took like landscape architecture and anthropology anthropology class yeah i i took it i took an italian food and culture class smith is like just a treasure trove of really interesting professors so i made sure to just sort of take advantage of that so when i was a senior there was a class economic botany which was a biology class but it was much more focused on sort of the influence of plants in our world And in a lot of ways that you don't think of, obviously there's edible plants, which you maybe consume directly or something like coffee that, you know, its form has changed in some way. But all the other ways, if you think about paper products or medicinal products, things like that, the professor of this course did his schooling at Harvard and he worked with, what's his name, Schulte, Richard Schulte or something like that. He was a Harvard uh, researcher back in the day who did a ton of research on largely psychedelic drugs, but for medicinal purposes. And so my professor and sort of his mentor at the time took trips to Africa, to South America, and were like in the jungles looking for new plants and products to be used as medicine. And so he ended up, he you know, finished, I think he got his, his PhD at Harvard, and then came to Smith and he was the director of the greenhouses at Smith. And this was just kind of like his side project was teaching this class, but it was an evening class taught in the greenhouses. And every class we would start with a different plant product. So it was often like we would have tea or coffee or chocolate or you know nuts or whatever, but it was something that we could interact with. And it was essentially the topic of the day. So it was part botanical but also part just sort of history and economics and it was super cool i love when you just find like like did you know much about that class before you took it or did it sound interesting and then you found that you were like this is really cool i'm passionate about this it sounded super cool and and i was i would say like i was a biology major but i was really not interested in just like sitting in a lab for my career i just really i wanted to be able to take my knowledge and my schooling and put it towards something like more I don't know like interdisciplinary I guess yeah no I completely understand that Um, because I did biology as well and you already know this but I took a lot of math classes just for fun I had to take you know the initial calculus classes and I realized one I was good at them and two I enjoyed doing them I feel like it helped me to become a more logical thinker to just do a lot of math problems Um, So I couldn't really see, like, anything that I wanted to do or anything that I was interested in, I couldn't see it not involving at least logic. Not necessarily, like, doing math problems, but at least having some level of logic along with it or, like, rationale. So I absolutely understand that. You mentioned a couple other classes you took. Some of my 
top favorite electives. I took history of rock and roll. That was a fun one where the professor clearly had like his rock ages, clearly <laughs> like went through, uh, you know, lots of drug experimentation. And then every once in a while when he would like, he would get to a point in his rambling where he couldn't describe the music anymore and he would just pull out his guitar and play it. Mm -hmm. So he would play like some solo from, you know, a song from the 60s. So that was a really fun class. Um, I really liked my mammalogy class only because the university here has a huge library of specimens. Oh, like yeah. it is, it is an entire building like devoted to specimens that you can get access to and go, um, that you can't like do dissections, but all sorts of stuff you can go study. But my favorite class was one that it was part of the mathematics track that I was in. I had to start picking electives like in, in higher level math. And it just sounded interesting. I picked cryptology and number theory. Cryptology sounds great. <laughs> number theory. Number theory. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, I agree with you. I love a good theory and, yeah. and mystery. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I agree with you because the class was split in which the first part of the class was all cryptology. So it was code making and code breaking mm -hmm. using math. And then we got into the number theory part and it was a lot of... Like, imagine having to prove that three comes after two. Like, yeah. that was, like, series of numbers and having to use mathematical theory to prove that, like, counting works. So it's stuff like that. It's not particularly interesting. Yeah, no, that's not... Um, that's one of those things in life that I have just accepted I don't need to know how to do. Like, there are people in this world that are going to do that, and I'm super grateful mm -hmm. for you. It's not me. So I loved... The cryptology portion. I still like. I have cryptology books. I just bought out of interest. Um, but this class was take like any sentence you could write it, and then you could use all sorts of different ciphers. That would be a mathematical equation to encrypt it, and then I could give you the cipher, and only you, if since you know like my secret number, you would be able to decrypt it using a similar mathematical equation. And as long as you don't give out the cipher to anyone else, no one else could break my code. Um, you know. So what you're telling me is it was a room full of dudes. There were girls in this class. <laughs> there were definitely girls in this class. Um, but I got, like, I got so interested in the history of cryptology mm -hmm. that I actually took a trip. This was the one time that I ended up in England and was in London. But I took a trip to the UK and toured... Um, have you seen The Imitation Game? Oh, yeah. So that movie is based on code breaking in World War II, and Bletchley Park was the site at which they did all this code breaking. Yeah. I went there, and it's a museum. They have a lot of the original just paperwork and technology that they used for code breaking. So I took this huge nerd trip and went out there and saw all this stuff, and a lot of it's still there. I sat in Alan Turing's chair, and I did my final project in that class on the Enigma, the typewriter looking mm -hmm. code machine. I like, I wrote a very long paper on how it works and tied it back into the concepts we were working on in class and the mathematical equations. So that was my favorite class. Total nerd tangent, but well, I loved it. I can't remember if I've told you this. My grandmother was a code breaker in World War II. You did? Um, I'm still kind of recovering from that, so thank you for <laughs> reopening that. You did tell me that, and I remember freaking out. Yeah, no, my my grandmother on my dad's side was a code breaker. She, you know, she was, I don't know, 18 or she was young, that is 18 or 19. Unreal. Um, that is so abnormal for the time. Yeah, that is so well, cool. She was living, um, she lived in Winchester, Massachusetts, which is sort of just north of Boston, and BU was training young women who essentially, like, if their men went off to... Um, serve in the war she signed up and said yeah I, I can do this and this, so this honestly makes sense because the code breaking effort for the on the U.S. side was all Massachusetts yeah nope so she was based at um, BU and did that my grandfather served he was up in the Aleutian Islands uh, up in Alaska and then on my mom's side my grandmother was a nurse in the Navy for World War II. I love this. Yeah. I love so. this. Kind of cool. Also, bringing it back to sort of botany, because it's all about me, um, <laughs> I found the guy's name, Richard Schultes. 
and this again is straight from Wikipedia, was an American biologist considered to be the father of modern ethnobotany. Did I? I might have found him as I was searching and searched it while you were talking, but it said he died in like 2001, though. Yeah, no, okay. he's dead. All right. This wasn't my professor. This was my professor's mentor. Got it. Yeah. I was going to um, say, you couldn't, couldn't have gotten him. <laughs> yeah, you know ethnobiology. That sounds yeah. really cool. He's known for his studies of the uses of plants by indigenous people. I was going to say, you look great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I don't otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> for having um, gone to college in 2001. <laughs> um, he worked on entheogenic or hallucinogenic plants, particularly in Mexico and the Amazon. His book, The Plant of Gods, Their Sacred Healing and Hallucinogenic Powers, co-authored with chemist Albert Hoffman. Do you know Albert Hoffman? The discoverer of LSD. Oh. Um, is considered to be his greatest work. Says he did a lot of work with indigenous people of America and what mm-hmm. they use the plants for. Yep. So that is who my professor studied under. So uh, just really cool experiences. But I think that's all we have time for today. We yep. unfortunately have to go to class. Chipotle. I shouldn't say unfortunately. It's a good class. It's a great class. But, you know, I could sit here and talk about plants all day long. Can we switch it back to math, actually? No, absolutely not. <laughs> cool. Oh, I loved your story. That was a good one. Thank you. Do you have any ideas for your next story? We have not done aliens yet. We did a survival story. Mm-hmm. We did a haunting story. Mm-hmm. Now we've done sort of a unsolved who done it. I think we need a. We might need an alien story. We'll see. And yeah, I could, I could tolerate an alien story. <laughs> you could tolerate. <laughs> She's just perking up. <laughs> I swear I'm not like a tin hat person, but no. I do love a good alien story. I will try to keep ships out of our entire <laughs> next podcast. Well, cool. All right. Same time next week. Same time next week. Mm-hmm.